Talk Real Estate with Sharon McNamara. Brought to you by Boston Connect Real Estate Services. Connect with Sharon now at 781-837-4900 and online at bostonconnect.com. Now, here's Sharon McNamara. Good morning, South Shore listeners. Uh, This is not Sharon McNamara. This is Michael Damon of Damon & Associates, Certified Public Accountants. And um, I was scheduled to be Sharon's guest host today, or or guest, and now I am the big guest host. And uh, I have with me uh, attorney Paul Kaufman of the law firm of Kaufman & Bennett. Say good morning. Hey, Paul. Good morning. Nice to see you, Michael. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Paul's been a, a, a colleague and friend for a number of years. I think we go back to the 80s. I think we do. <laughs> the late 80s with, uh, with uh, Peter Bennett, I, his partner. I used to ro- cycle with Peter, and we would usually end up at the office and got to know Paul over the years, and we have some mutual clients. So I invited Paul in here today. So, Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about your practice and, and what you do? It's my privilege to have been in this community for 45 years, soon to be 46 years. It's a general practice of law. There's a heavy emphasis on real estate, family law, and small businesses. I also do quite a bit of estate planning work. So that's the four basic areas that I'm involved in, and candidly, that's enough. (laughs) In order to be good at uh, what I try to do, you really have to stay on top of your game and to have a too diverse a practice would be a disservice to the clientele. Right. You can't be a specialist in every area. No. But ever since I came here, Mike, uh, real estate has been the driving influence. uh, And it was very fortuitous for me because I came to Marshfield in 1970. Real estate was the central industry. And when you think about it, Mike, real estate has driven the South Shore economy in large measure for a long time. It not only had the developmental aspects, but it supported all the trades, it supported all the suppliers, that in turn brought families, the families then had needs for retail, for professional, so the real estate uh, influence of the South Shore has really driven the economy for the last 45 years. Right. Do you see that continuing, or are, are the South Shore towns, or, or like, say, Marshfield, Pembroke, Situate, are, are they built out, or are there still quite a bit of land or for developments? You know, every time I think that Marshfield, for example, is built out, I see another subdivision going in. I can remember uh, several years ago when I was on school committee, the school department took a careful look at what the future was to make sure that they would have enough facilities. And at that time, we were talking about being 80% built out. So that was over a decade ago. So clearly we're getting there. We're, okay, very good. It, it, you know, and, and I'm sure our, our listeners realize, you know, down here on the South Shore, we've got great school systems. I mean, Marshfield, you know, not only the, the teachers, but the facilities now, you know, Marshfield has this brand new high school, which is, I haven't seen the inside, I've only seen the outside of it. Oh, you yeah, definitely have to take a tour. It's a magnificent educational facility. It really excites the passion to understand that our community and several of the neighboring communities who have also built have come 
into this century with a facility that will meet the educational needs of the children. And it does also drive real estate because the first thing anybody who buys a new home is concerned about is how good are the schools. And the schools are exceptional. Right. And and that's not only for people with children, but even couples who don't have children or older couples because the schools support value in the town the the real estate values because if the school even if you don't have children you may be selling to somebody who has children and you know again a good school system supports real estate values unquestionably unquestionably okay good good so uh, enough about the schools but so we're here to talk about uh real estate today and and i wanted to talk ask you some questions about because we run into this sometimes uh being a cpa firm uh you know a tax pri- primarily heavy on tax um and, and titling of assets we don't really think of it our, our clients will sometimes ask us to put our lawyer hat on and uh i can say once in a while we do put it on <laughs> we don't like to um but um you know about titling of assets and how you know single people couples different age groups how they title assets and how that can affect them maybe not immediately but down the road you know most people who own real estate who have not thought through these issues carefully have the traditional title to their homes and by that i mean a married couple would typically have husband and wife as tenants by the entirety and that's all driven by the deed when they took title to the property those who are not married would is it's joint ownership as opposed to individual ownership either have it as tenants in common or joint tenants the distinction between all of them is what happens on the passing of the owner of the property for example two people own property as tenants in common in law we like to say that they each have an undivided one-half interest in the property That means that on the passing as as a a tenant in common, the heirs of the person who passed inherit the property, not the other co-owner, unless there's a will or something that directs otherwise. Whereas with joint tenants, on the passing of one of the two or more joint tenants, the surviving owner inherits the property. You mentioned um, tenants by the entirety. Is that the same thing with rights of survivorship? It is. It, it does have the same rights of survivorship. It's afforded to husband and wife and gives a little extra creditor-type protection. And it is the tradition now. Mm-hmm. And, and is that the same with same-sex couples that are now married with rights of survivorship? Or Very good question. My best understanding is that is in fact true. Okay. Married couples can take advantage of the tenancy. Okay. It, it really doesn't matter all that much as long as they have joint tenancy, if mm-hmm. they're worried about the survivorship asset. Mm-hmm. What, we're, what we're doing is dealing at one level with creditor rights against the property. Okay. So, so um, I, I guess you brought up that point, creditor rights. So, you know, how is one protected? Let's say, for example, we'll pick on the husband. Husband gets into trouble financially, runs up credit card debt or some business debt. Maybe he's not incorporated. It's going to flow. He signed personally. How is the spouse protected under the joint ownership? No, it doesn't no. protect okay. it. Okay. The, the creditor rights um, would attach to the property. Mm-hmm. And even though only one of the spouse has created the problem, the lien goes against the property. 
not just against the the interest of the spouse. Okay. So it becomes a, a very important issue. And in fact, becomes an issue when we look at the title to the property when properties are transferred, which is a subject that you and I should perhaps address <laughs> later on. But the best thing, and, and the first thing that came to my mind was people who should almost automatically, if they haven't if they don't do anything else, take advantage of the Homestead Act. The Homestead Act, if you put a declaration of homestead on your property, will give you up to $500,000 of protection in the equity. You know, if people, as we often say, think of their home as their castle, they want to create levels of protection to prevent creditors or problems from attaching to the property. So if you think of the castle, when the castles were built, they built them with strong walls, tall walls, watchtowers. They would put a moat around it, a drawbridge. They'd often clear the fields that uh, approaching it, or they would be built on waterways, making it difficult for people to approach. Well, I always tell people that the declaration of homestead is like a level of protection. It's the moat around your castle. It's not impregnable but it has certain very specific and very strong rights, and everybody should have one. Yeah. The homestead, is it filed by the couple? Uh, is it, something it is that's filed on? by the couple. And in fact, under the new law, if no one takes advantage of it, there's an automatic homestead. What I want people to do is take advantage of it and file a declaration and get the maximum coverage. So if they don't file it, what's the difference? I believe it's 125000 of protection versus 500000 oh, substantial difference. Substantial difference. Okay, okay. Um, and is that something that's difficult to file? It is so simple. In fact, uh, much to the lawyer's chagrin, the <laughs> Registry of Deeds will have a form. You can go online and get the form. You can fill it out, sign it in front of a notary, and record it. And in fact, it's the least expensive recording fee. It's only a $35 recording fee. Uh, pretty reasonable for f- that much protection. Very much so. And it and it's the first type of protection that a homeowner who is just in the ordinary course should be thinking about. Okay. You and I should probably talk about other ways to mm-hmm. title property right. and get protection. Okay. Just one, one more thing quickly on the homestead. So it, it doesn't help you with, of course, the mortgage or any uh, debt against the property or I guess would be real estate taxes or possibly condo fees? No, it does not because, um, first of all, the mortgage uh, lender will insist that whatever declaration is already in existence be subrogated and or, as most of the mortgage instruments uh, do, have a provision to waive any pre-existing declaration of homestead. So what is important to do, particularly in the era of refinance, is to reassert your your declaration of homestead. That's the conservative approach. Uh There is a variation of opinions on that, but the conservative and more prudent approach would be to reassert the homestead. I'd like to remind our listeners, this is a uh, call-in talk radio show. Uh, Again, this is Boston Connect at WATD 95.9. You can give us a call at 781-837-4900. So let's talk about some of other ways of titling property. Well, there are uh, lots and lots of ways, Mike. Um, People who are dealing with investment properties, as an example, could think about a limited liability company or a corporation. 
and those are prudent things to do. Uh, in fact, uh, the limited liability company, from my standpoint, was specifically designed uh, initially to deal with real estate and real estate development. Okay. <laughs> That's fine. Um, so, just quickly, a limited liability, because we see that a lot in uh, business ownership today. Um, just quickly, before I know you get into the specifics of it, I, I know one of the downsides, if, if people own a single-family home that they rented out, you know, the first thing with the LLC is, is the $500 fee. Not only a $500 filing fee, but an annual fee of, right. of similar value right. amounts. In fact, that's one of the reasons um, my personal preference from an economic standpoint is corporations. I often think of limited liability companies as being the boutique form of ownership uh, at this time. It's a very good concept. It works wonderfully well. But corporations have been tried and tested for decades beyond the existence of limited liability companies. The problem with corporate ownership is that if the people don't follow all the indicia of being a corporation, have their annual meeting, have the meeting minutes uh, of both the board of directors and the stockholders uh, attended to, file with the Commonwealth of Mass, the Secretary of State, as they should. Keep and make sure that they identify themselves as a corporation in all their dealings, in their checks, in their signing of documents. So it's very important to, in order to get the protection that a corporation offers that you fulfill all the technical requirements. It's very simple. People can learn it very easily. In fact, when I incorporate people, I give them a little lecture about this and give them a, a printout of what they must do on an annual basis to make sure their corporation remains in good standing. Right. Well, well, I know one of the things that we do in our office, if we're taking on a new client, whether it be an LLC or a corporation, we go right to the Secretary of State's website and identify because more than likely... <laughs> they have not kept up with their filings. Or a lot of times we find that people have not. And I would say that's probably 30 to 40% that they could be behind just one year or multiple years and not aware that their corporation could be dissolved. Exactly. And then you have to file to reinstate it. So and you mentioned a very good resource because I also, mm. the first thing I do is go to the website for the Commonwealth of Mass Secretary of State corporate section. You can type in the name. Now it's it's very sensitive to the name. You must have the exact name and spell it correctly. But you can get right online very quickly and see what the filings were, whether or not the, the corporation is up to date. From a litigator's standpoint, that's one of the first things you do when you are dealing with a corporation. Are they still incorporated? Because if they're not, then you can go after the principals personally. Right. They, they do look at that. And in fact, one of my clients recently was involved in a lawsuit, and that was the first thing the opposing side did, was check the articles of organization, make sure the inner reports were filed and, you know, upkept, and the minutes were filed each year. Very so. important to do. Very simple thing to do. They're not very elaborate. The, re the annual filing is a one-page document, and it's repetitive. It's almost exactly the same year after year. So you can almost change the date and refile and be safe if, in fact, you haven't changed any officership or, you know, the president, vice president, and the clerk or secretary, as we now refer to it. Sure. Okay, so uh, we're just about at our break time. So I think we'll take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about titling issues.
Are you thinking about selling your home or buying a new one? Are you a first-time home buyer or perhaps just right-sizing? Do you have a buyer's agent? Do you know if you really even need one? What is home staging? Will it really help me sell my home faster? Do I have to have a home inspection? How much home insurance do I need for my new home? How do I handle my estate sale? What are home sale contingencies? Have you heard that you have to put 20% down to buy a new home? Did you know that that wasn't true? Are you worried about environmental issues? What is radon, lead paint, and mold? Is there a difference between a foreclosed property or a short sale? Do you need to have a Title V inspection to sell your home? What do you do if your system fails? Are these questions you have but you don't know who to ask? Hi, I'm Sharon McNamara of Boston Connect Real Estate. Call my office for a one-on-one consultation with me or one of the many dedicated agents at Boston Connect Real Estate so we can talk real estate. It's easy to connect with some of the South Shore's most experienced real estate agents. Go to bostonconnect.com, bostonconnect.com, or call 781-826-7300. Imperial Inspection Services, complete home inspection services, radon testing, featuring on-site results with electronic testing, lead paint inspection, Title V inspection, pest inspection, including FHA and VA. Call seven days a week, 1-800-440-1141, or visit them on the web at imperialinspectionservices.com. With 28 years' experience in two convenient locations, Braintree and Cape Cod, except credit cards for all services rendered. Imperial Inspection Services. 1-800-440-1141. 1-800-440-1141. Plumbing problems are inevitable. Sad to say, do not fix it yourself. After all, that's your home you're living in. McNamara Plumbing. New construction, renovations, repairs, service calls. McNamara Plumbing. Fully insured, 781-294-7100. McNamara Plumbing. 50% more talk real estate, absolutely free. Talk real estate with Sharon McNamara. Now, one hour, every Saturday morning on 95.9 WATD. Good morning. This is Michael Damon back with you at Boston Connect Talk Real Estate. And uh, I have with my guest, uh, attorney Paul Coffin. But just a little shout out. Um, I think it was Ryan. It was yesterday that uh, Ed Perry was inducted into the Massachusetts Broadcasters Hall of Fame. Is that correct? Yes, he was. So uh, we, we had a nice luncheon forum the uh, Mass Broadcasters Association put on. And it was a great time, so congratulations to Ed. Oh, yeah, you know, and what a group of people he went in with. Uh, Joe Castiglione, um, I think it was uh, Amelia Beretta, and uh, Dr. Tim Johnson. I could I draw a blank on his name for a minute. But just a, a great group of people, and I, I know Ed was involved. Ed, I've known Ed now as long as I've known Paul uh, a long, long time. And just a quick story, he was one of my first corporate clients. And I was sitting at a chamber event with no clients. And and, uh, he says, oh, I may have to talk to a CPA one time. This is before he built this wonderful facility here. And uh, so we've been doing business together for about 30 years as well. So uh, congratulations to Ed. I agree. And I'm sitting here smiling broadly because I had the privilege of doing Ed's corporate work when he first began WATD. And as he knows, we put his radio tower up near the Marshfield Town Dump. 
and we did a little bit of work to accomplish that with the various boards and uh, we often talk about WAD TD standing for We're at the Dump. Right. right. At, at one point, uh, he had another facility, which was a simulcast facility for part of the day, uh, down Cape Cod, and I was working with Ed on that transaction, and uh, that was WATB, we're, we're at the beach. So he's always had it kept the theme of wherever the tower is, we're going to name it somehow get the call letters, and we found that those letters were available, and we grabbed those. Ryan, were you at the event yesterday, or? I was. Ah, it was good. And who did the presentation for Ed? Uh, Rob Hackley. Rob Hackley did. Okay, yeah, very it good. It was very nice. Yeah, good, good. Okay, so um, back to real estate, and um, we're going to talk about um, you know estate issues with real estate and what can come up in titling and things like that. You know, like I couldn't help but listen to the earlier broadcast when they were talking about long-term health care, and not everybody can afford that. Although they should always consider it. It's a wonderful product. And, and for those who can obtain it, careful consideration should be given to acquire it. But several people, for different reasons, are unable to. And there are other vehicles that uh, people can use to protect their asset, particularly their home, which, was, as was pointed out, is a major asset. And that is the use of a trust. Now, that's a very broad <laughs> term because there are all sorts of trusts. There are what we like to call nominee trust, which is a very common way to hold title to real estate. There are revocable trusts and irrevocable trusts. What's very important about having a home in a trust is for people to understand that it is not an impregnable protection. The state of the art at the moment is that if it's in a good, solid trust, typically an irrevocable trust, it would be difficult after a number of years for the government to lean the asset to pay for long-term health care. But even that is subject to review and analysis. For a long, long time, we used to think in terms of trusts having to exist for three years to protect the asset. And for about a decade, uh, before a change that occurred, and I'm losing track of time, probably five years ago, we were all thinking that they would change the three years to five years. But in fact, the way the law is written, the government, and particularly the state government, has the right to go back as far as they like. So they're going to look at the person, the needs, the transfer, the type of trust and how long it has been in trust. My best understanding at the moment is that they're really only looking back five years. That's an awful long time. It's still a long time that has to pass has before to, hopefully the assets protected. Right. And, and that's a real issue. So as people enter into their senior years, they really have to be thinking about their overall estate planning in any event. But as their home is typically a major asset, they should be looking at that early and often to see if they have a vehicle which will work for them and give them the protection that they need. You know, Congress has said for the trust to be impregnable, the people must give up control. Mm -hmm. 
it's a very hard issue for most individuals. I, I to, think the uh, key word to. you said there is irrevocable, <laughs> that or irrevocable. Uh, it's difficult for people to get their hand. They're giving up something for good that they can't get it back. They've made this, whether it's a transfer to children or to charity or what have you, and they cannot get it back. And I think that scares a lot of people. It clearly does. But it's something that people should be looking at. It's the uh, most accepted and sure opportunity. But even that's being looked at carefully these days. Mm -hmm. So the, the language of the trust is examined. How long it's been in trust is examined. And the intent of the people who is actually exercising control over the property. One of the things I typically find uh, um, that people forget when they do this is that they no longer own the property. The trust owns right. the property. And just this past week, I had two distinct calls from seniors who had their properties in trust and forgot that they were no longer the owner and as a consequence lost their old age deduction or benefit from the town from a taxing standpoint and were very upset that they lost <laughs> that opportunity not recognizing the protection that the trust was affording them right. yeah for our listeners who who aren't aware that uh seniors 65 and older that own real estate in massachusetts if their income is below a certain threshold and i believe their real estate taxes make up more than 10 percent of that income then there is a possible credit of refundable credit of up to a thousand dollars that they can get on their taxes and this so. is the very credit that I'm speaking right. about. If the property is in trust, that opportunity is lost. Yeah, we call it the circuit breaker credit. Don't ask me where they got the word, the term circuit breaker, but uh, it is called the circuit breaker credit. So, um, so, so they found out that they didn't actually own their home, and that could also affect what else? Well, you know, where their future planning, for example, if they want to sell it, and whether or not they have retained the rights to remain in the home through a life estate, all of which the government is looking at very, very carefully. It's, it's very basic. Mm -hmm. um, we have an aging population. More and more people are living longer lives. Their needs are becoming greater. Their financial resources are being exhausted earlier than ever before or even if not earlier than before and it's later on the longevity has created an issue where people are running out of funds and their home becomes their major asset the government takes a look at that home to offset any costs it may advance to sustain these people long-term health care issues being a primary one okay just want to remind our listeners this is a uh call-in talk radio show and our phone number is 781-837-4900 if you have a, a question for attorney uh, paul kaufman or myself michael damon uh, i'm better on the tax side of things uh, please give us a call uh, we're going to be here for the next half hour so um, we uh, will entertain uh, your telephone calls so uh, the trust um is there a certain age that you recommend people should start transferring? I mean, let's say you have a young couple that just bought a house. They're in their 30s, let's say. Um, would you have them put it in a trust right away? Or do you have is something that happens later on? My general philosophy is to take a look at their overall standing. So much depends on whether or not they're in business or they're in a profession that has them exposed to some sort of liability. 
I like to encourage people to uh, use the vehicle of a trust in their planning as, as an important opportunity. What we're trying to do, in, in, especially with younger people, is to put a wall of protection, again, the castle analogy, mm-hmm. between themselves and creditors protecting their home. So depending on their exact situation, I oftentimes recommend a, a simpler version of a trust. There is a, a nominee trust. And, and one of the things that is very important for people to understand is if you are the sole trustee and the sole beneficiary, you failed in all your opportunities. So you really have to think in terms of who is trustee, who are the beneficiaries. It's a little easier when it's a married couple than an individual. But knowing who the trustee is and having confidence in the fidelity and the truthfulness and integrity of the trustee becomes very important in their thinking. Yeah. Hey, we have a caller. It's Kathleen from Boston. Kathleen, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Do you have a question for either uh, Paul or myself? Yes, just a quick, quick question. Uh, I'm living in the house that I grew up in. The mortgage was taken out with my brother and sister. We've since paid it off. But there's an adjacent piece of land that's attached to the house property, and it is in my mother's name. She's been dead for 30 years, and my father is also gone. Um, I've spoken to several lawyers, and they say that we would have to probate both their wills in order to get my sister and I's name on this piece of property. I was wondering if there was a shortcut. (laughs) (laughs) There is no shortcut. And and that's a a very common problem, especially with properties that is passed down from uh, family member to family member. It's not a difficult process. So don't worry about taking a shortcut per se, particularly where your siblings are around and they can assent to the work. The probating of the two estates is absolutely the only way you're going to be able to secure title. Uh What most people don't understand is title passes by two methods. It's either passed by deed or by inheritance. So when people, when lawyers or others do title exams to see who owns the property, we look at both the deeds and the probate records. And the probate record will suffice to transfer the property from your deceased parent's name into your sibling and yourself. Whichever of your parents died first, that estate has to be probated. If there's no will, there's a statutory inheritance procedure so that you're the surviving parent and, candidly, Mm. all of the children inherited a piece. And then on the passing of the second parent, the the children, yourself and the siblings inherit. So you're creating a record at the probate court which passes the title into your and your sibling's name. I see. Yeah. It's Kathleen. not a very difficult, nor is it all that costly. Kathleen, did both your parents have wills? My mother passed without a will, and as I understand, her um, property uh, was split between my father, half going to him, and the other half going to myself and my two other siblings. That's correct. Uh, my brother is the executor of my father's estate, and he has said he didn't want any any portion of the land, didn't want to be involved in it. Is there any way I could just get like a notarized note for him saying it's okay? Well, 
if you're, if in fact your brother is the executor of the estate, I have to ask you whether or not that neighboring piece of land was added to the inventory. That's part of how the records are kept. The inventory of the estate lists the real estate holdings. So it was not. So uh, the, when has we, the estate um, been closed? Pardon? Has the estate been closed? I think so, yes. Yeah, they're going to have to, it gets a little more complicated, which is why you're going to probably need some legal help. You're probably going to have to either open up the estate, amend the inventory, list the inventory, and then close it, or take a land court procedure to clarify this issue. Right. So, Kathleen, your, your mom passed first and then your dad, correct? Yes. Okay, okay. So, yeah, I guess it, the brother would have to open up the estate again. Or, You'd oh, have to open yeah. up the estate, or you might be able to go through land court to clarify it. Either way, your brother can decline whatever it is that he's giving up. He can he can deed his ownership to you. So uh, he would have to open up the estate. I'm writing this down. <laughs> and we could go to land court? As an alternative method. Okay. And, by the way, that also is dependent upon whether or not this was registered or unregistered oh. land. <laughs> if it's registered land, it's a far more complicated. Registered land being land that the land court oversees and controls. Well, this is land that we pay taxes on, property taxes. Does that make it registered? No, it does not. Ah. And taxes does not have it. Paying the taxes has nothing to do with the ownership. So it might be unregistered. Hopefully, for your sake, it is. <laughs> okay. Kathleen, do you have any other questions for us? No, I think you've given me several good points to look into. So I, I think you got some good upfront advice from the attorneys that uh, you would have to open up at least maybe your, your dad's estate uh, and, uh, you know, to tra get that land transferred. And probably better to do it now while people are healthy, they remember correctly, you know, yeah. uh, they can get records of that type of thing. Yes, and, something and the you don't advice was free. That's the best part. Yeah, very uh -huh. good. Most lawyers, Kathleen, will give you a free consultation. Really? Yes. Okay. Well, thank you. You've been very, very helpful. I, hey. I enjoy your show. Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you for the call. Bye-bye. So, interesting issue that pops up there with people. Not an uncommon. Yeah. You know, we're seeing all sorts of title issues, and that's a classic problem. Or a missing heir. Mm -hmm. Someone has disappeared. But the most common that I see on a daily basis is the undischarged former mortgage, either by a current owner or a former owner. Oh, you don't have to tell me about that. <laughs> that's, that's happened to me twice now. And you know, there I, are so many bank right. failures and so many um, assignments of mortgages that were not recorded. Let me explain what I mean. When the initial lender lends money on the mortgage. They put on record the, the a document known as a mortgage. Quite often, they sell that mortgage, just like apples and oranges. Mm -hmm. They get sold. There are people who buy them. And the uh, original bank or lending institution must assign on the record to whomever is buying that new mortgage, and they become the owner and holder of record. Well, over the years, there were all of this um, quasi-questionable activities by some of the lending institutions. They bundled the loans, they sold them, and no one ever recorded the assignments. Since which time, many of those institutions have gone out of business. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the puzzle becomes how to clarify the record, how to prove 
who currently owns it and how to get an assignment into the current owner by the last person who was on record as being the owner. In fact, Michael, it, it's something that most real estate lawyers are very good at doing. Uh, a lot of us, as I do, depend on our paralegal who have developed an expertise. But even then, it's an economic decision one makes. I know we can spend a certain amount of time, and we're very successful at chasing down these undischarged mortgages. But after a certain amount of time, it doesn't make economic sense. There are companies out there, I know of three, mm. who for a fee make the effort to get the mortgages. And by the way, they're very successful <laughs> at it. So we're going to take our uh, second break here. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Because in my case, uh, uh, Paul helped us on the sale of real estate. And we had some uh, an old mortgage cleanup. And then we're going to talk about uh, the new, uh, I guess, closing rules under... Um, uh, what was the bill? The um, oh, I'm darn a blank. <laughs> uh, but anyways, uh, under the new closing rules that I, I think kick in pretty quick. October first. October first. Okay, we'll take a break. Plumbing problems are inevitable. Sad to say, do not fix it yourself. After all, that's your home you're living in. McNamara Plumbing. New construction, renovations, repairs, service calls. McNamara Plumbing. Fully insured. 781-294-7100. McNamara Plumbing. Imperial Inspection Services. Complete home inspection services. Radon testing featuring on-site results with electronic testing, lead paint inspection, Title V inspection, pest inspection, including FHA and VA. Call seven days a week, 1-800-440-1141 or visit them on the web at imperialinspectionservices.com. With 28 years experience in two convenient locations, Braintree and Cape Cod, accepting credit cards for all services rendered. Imperial Inspection Services. 1-800-440-1141. 1-800-440-1141. Are you thinking about selling your home or buying a new one? Are you a first-time home buyer or perhaps just right-sizing? Do you have a buyer's agent? Do you know if you really even need one? What is home staging? Will it really help me sell my home faster? Do I have to have a home inspection? How much home insurance do I need for my new home? How do I handle my estate sale? What are home sale contingencies? Have you heard that you have to put 20% down to buy a new home? Did you know that that wasn't true? Are you worried about environmental issues? What is radon, lead paint, and mold? Is there a difference between a foreclosed property or a short sale? Do you need to have a Title V inspection to sell your home? What do you do if your system fails? Are these questions you have but you don't know who to ask? Hi, I'm Sharon McNamara of Boston Connect Real Estate. Call my office for a one-on-one consultation with me or one of the many dedicated agents at Boston Connect Real Estate so we can talk real estate. It's easy to connect with some of the South Shore's most experienced real estate agents. Go to bostonconnect.com, bostonconnect.com, or call 781-826-7300. 50% more talk real estate absolutely free. Talk real estate with Sharon McNamara. Now, one hour every Saturday morning on 95.9 WATD. 
We are back. This is Michael Damon filling in for Sharon McNamara of uh, Talk Real Estate, Boston Connect Real Estate. And again, I have my guest here, attorney Paul Kaufman. And we were talking about uh, titling issues as well as cleaning up mortgages and past liens on property. And and recently, uh, I had sold a, a piece of commercial property, which we ran into this exact issue. And probably one of the best things I did was I had my own title insurance. Absolutely. Although, as you recall, um, the the buyer was not interested in your coverage and insisted we get the discharge. And as I said, tracking those discharges has become an art form, and so many are capable of doing it that we were very uh, quickly able to locate that discharge and clear the problem, which your buyer insisted upon. And it raises the issue of title insurance because there's a difference between marketable title and insurable title. And what we, in your case, had was insurable title. It was no longer marketable because of that missing discharge. Right. Once we got the discharge and recorded it, it became marketable. Mm. So it's a very common issue. And title insurance, for the most part, is a wonderful vehicle. It's a one-time charge that people pay for when they initially purchase property. They are almost always, in the case of residential purchases, required to buy a loan policy. So for an additional cost, they can get an owner's policy. And most of the policies are written that it has an inflationary cost involvement in it so that as your property goes up in value, the coverage will increase in value. And as you pay down your debt. Exactly. Right. Okay, good. good. So it's a very good value. Uh, it's a nice piece of insurance and generally takes care of these types of issues because the title insurance company will then seek to get the discharge. Right, right. Okay, so uh, in our last um, 15 minutes here, um, we were going to talk a little bit about, I, I think, uh, an act that came out of Frank Dodd. That's who we drew a blank on before the break. And, uh, you know, what's going to happen October 1st with closings and, and maybe uh, they may take a little bit longer. There may be a little bit more dotting of the I's, crossing of the T's. Maybe you can explain that, Paul. You know, basically, not much is changing. However, procedures are changing. For the last several decades, most people who got a loan from a lending institution were given a good faith estimate. And that good faith estimate was an effort to ensure that when they got to the closing table, they would know pretty much what this loan was going to cost. But what has happened with the great rush of the numbers of closings, the lending institutions were a little overwhelmed and they were getting the information to the closer at the last moment. As a consequence, people didn't know exactly how much money they had to bring to the closing, whether or not they got the rate that they were told they were going to get. So in an effort to protect the consumers, the government stepped in and has imposed some new rules which require that the buyer know all of the information three days in advance of the closing. In order for that to happen, the lender has to have all of its work done many days in advance. So basically, the new procedures are going to, A, 
enable a buyer to be very much aware of what their obligations are three days in advance, and B, require them to have given all of the documentation that is necessary to qualify for the loan well in advance. One of the most uh, troubling but important areas of this new loan procedure is that it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to do back-to-back closings. What do I mean by that? Let's say a couple is selling a home and planning on buying another one immediately. In the past, we would oftentimes schedule the sale in the morning and the purchase in the afternoon. That opportunity is now going to be lost. A seller of their first home is going to have to wait as the buyer of the second home. And what we're trying to help people understand is that it changes the culture of the closing as well as the documentation, including the purchase and sales agreement. Because of the time constraints required and the proof of the actual net proceeds from the sale in order to qualify to buy, Mm. there's going to be a time lag. So what most of us are doing is developing language within our purchase and sales agreement, which gives the seller the opportunity to remain in the property for several days until they can proceed to purchase the new uh, home. Let me clarify that. So they would sell their property. And instead of getting out immediately, they're going to have to remain in the property until the closing for their purchase can be arranged. And that changes the whole culture of things because it, I can remember doing four or five deals in a row where one buyer became the seller, who became the buyer, who became the seller, who became mm. the buyer. That's not going to happen, happen anymore. You know, it's funny, thinking back um, when we uh, sold our last house, and we were lucky we were built a house, just a little bit different. We got permission to go into the brand new house. We closed on a Monday, I believe, on the old house. For some reason, it was either Tuesday or Wednesday, and the builder said, you can't move in your fixtures, but you can put a mattress on the floor to sleep on. We'll let you stay there for a couple days, you know? Isn't that interesting? Because I've usually seen it the other way. They'll let you move your furniture and personal property in, but not let you move in. Oh, yeah. It's funny. Well, I guess maybe it's one or the other. <laughs> so uh, we were, we did get to go in. So I could see that being an issue where I can see that you, you couldn't can't have back-to-back closing. So somehow either... Maybe the house they're buying is already empty. Maybe it was a parent who passed, what have you. They could go in early. Or probably more than likely, the the house that they're selling, they get to stay there a little bit longer until they close. And that's probably what's going to happen. And it's as I said, it's going to change the culture a little bit. But as lawyers, we worry about the liability issues. You have You now have someone who is a tenant. What happens if there's a delay in the opportunity to complete their new purchase. What happens to the person who sold? What happens to the buyer of the first house? Mm -hmm. Where are they going to be? 
I think some of the local hotels and motels are going to be having special deals for people. Yeah, put your moving truck in the back lot. And, and exactly. That's <laughs> yeah. just a typical issue. Mm. What happens to the moving vehicle? Normally, they go from one place to the other. Property is going to be, have to be stored. So there, mm. there are all sorts of kinks that are yet to be resolved. But cool heads are going to prevail, and candidly, goodwill amongst people will also take charge here, and we'll resolve these issues, including the liability issues. Right. I, I know when we moved, uh, we moved our uh, furniture out on a Friday, so we had no furniture over that weekend plus one more day, and everything stayed on the truck. In fact, I remember the kids, when they were still small, uh, their swing set was tied on to the back this big behemoth wooden thing, you know, was tied to the back, uh, and it was a very large, and everything just stayed on the truck for the weekend, you know, probably, but again, there was probably extra charges to do that, and you're tying up one of their assets. Exactly, and and that's going to be part of the difficulty here. Okay. What are, uh, now, how about uh, with, uh, with a refinance, probably just with one party, it's not going to be as bad? No. Refinance, it won't be as bad. But even the documentation is changing. The traditional HUD-1, which is the settlement statement or the accounting, the math, is going to look very different than what people have been used to. Um, there's going to be one separate document for the sellers and a separate document for the buyers, and, and not they won't necessarily share the information. But you know what? It's not that dramatic a change and all of my colleagues who have been doing this for a long time are transitioning very easily. And it's about the ability to communicate, to make sure people know and understand. You know, if you know, like, and understand the information, it's easy to share it in an intelligent way that all can grasp it. Mm-hmm. Now, this is not just a Massachusetts law. This is across the country? Across the country. Okay. So everybody's in is October 1st, or have some people already started doing no, this? No, October 1st is the official time. It actually was supposed to have been August 1st, and it was delayed in its implementation. So a lot of us got all geared up and ready for August, and now we're just sitting back waiting for but no, fur- no further delays. No further delays that I'm aware of. Right. And, and the HUD statement itself is much longer now, is it not? Yes, it is. Okay. It is. But, it, you know, it's still, it's still the same basic information. What was the purchase price? How much did you put down? How much, was, how much are you borrowing? What are the adjustments, be it the real estate tax adjustment or the condominium fee adjustment, the oil adjustment, the water adjustment, the trash refuge pickup adjustment, the real estate tax adjustment? And all of those are having some delicate massages as we deal with who's staying in the house for how long. Right, right. So, And, and I know with our closing, we, we weren't sure of the day, so we had to keep on adjusting those numbers. And in this day and age with computers, it's it much, much easier. But remember that three-day rule where all the information must be... Uh, must be locked in or locked, we, locked we start in, a new three-day period. Locked in or you start a new three-day period. Yeah, I think that's going to be the challenge is people are going to have to be... You know, it's like before computers, you know, we make a mistake on a piece of paper. We can just spit out that page again very quickly. But in the old days, when we were typing by hand, we either had to type the whole page over again or we were whiting out and, and putting in... I, I think probably things to some extent are going to have to be much more exact. Absolutely. Michael, when I started in this business, there were basically four documents. The deed, the note, 
the mortgage and the settlement statement. And in fact, we used to do the f- closing figures right at the table. I, I was notorious for care- keeping a brandy snifter with pennies on my co- <laughs> table. And instead of changing the document, I would push the pennies between the parties and resolve any minor differences. Right, there you go. Can't do that anymore. Right. Uh, I think we're at the point where um, we're supposed to hear a doorbell ring. There we go. (laughs) And uh, that is for me to announce uh, the open houses this weekend for bostonconnect.com. You know, please go to uh, the website for Boston Connect. Uh, Under the buying section, they have their open houses for the weekend. And I believe you can look up all the open houses on the South Shore as well. There's quite a few in uh, Pembroke, Bridgewater, Halifax, and Marshfield this weekend uh, for Boston Connect. So if you're looking for a house, please uh, take a look at uh, Sharon's website at Boston Connect or any of her agents. She's got a great group of people there. Um, I know quite a few of them, and uh, they would be glad to help you out. So wrapping up our, our last few minutes here, Paul, um, you know, what else could you say to our listeners regarding um, y- you know, real estate and titling and, and things they should look for maybe as they get older? You know, common sense really applies here. Pick a professional in whose fidelity you can with safety rely and proceed rely on your realtor they are well trained rely on the attorney equally trained and they work hand in hand you have an opportunity to get excellent advice and be well protected as you proceed to either buy or sell a home or transition to a different arrangement very good. And, and Paul, how do, um, how do people get a hold of you? What's the best way if somebody needs a lawyer either for real estate or the other areas that you cover? My office has been here in Marshfield. This is my 45th year. I'm right on Webster Street, right in the shopping plaza in Marshfield. My telephone number is 781-837-9944. It's answered 24 hours, seven days a week. Always leave a message. I pride myself on returning my calls. Yeah. Paul is very good at returning calls. We have uh, uh, done work together for a number of years. And, uh, you know, he's been in business for 45 years. But uh, uh, aging-wise, you've done very well. Whenever I, I ask different people, I say, how old do you think Paul is? It's always at least 10 or 12 years younger. You're most kind. <laughs> so uh, I highly recommend uh, Paul. My name is Michael Damon. I'm with Damon & Associates. Again, we're a certified public accounting firm. Uh, you know, we do, we represent individuals and uh, corporations, businesses as well. Uh, I call it small business, but we cover anything up to really $100 million in sales for corporations, uh, which is small business still, uh, even though it's quite large for us. But we, but we do mom and pops as well. You know, our bread and butter is companies anywhere from a million to $5 million in sales. That's what we do. We help people with taxes this time of year. We're wrapping up last year's tax returns. We have an October 15th deadline. We have, uh, and then we get into tax planning. We're going to be doing a lot of tax planning for our clients. We don't want any surprises come April 15th. So um, I thank you for listening today. I thank you for our caller. And again, this is Michael Damon uh, representing uh, Sharon McNamara on Boston Connect Real Estate. 